petition, the third chapter today. About two weeks ago, very unusually, the Lord gave me uh, my message for last Sunday morning that was particularly for the men because their ladies were at camp, but also the message for this Sunday morning, which is very unusual. The Lord would give me a couple of weeks in a row, but for whatever reason he did, that's what the Lord chose to do, and I was grateful for the advance notice. But it doesn't always work like that. Amen. We serve a good God. Amen. He is very much aware of our shortcomings, and uh, he loves us, and he wants to minister to us and, and through us and in us and among us, and we are a very blessed people. So Revelation chapter 3, and I just want to read one verse. Verse 5 says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Amen. Father, we thank you today for your presence. We thank you for your people in your house. And Lord, we just ask you that you would have your way in our midst this morning, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, Lord, through your word, I pray. We ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bless the Lord. In the book, The Cross and the Switchblade, which some of you may have heard of, was also made into a film. It's the story of a a young preacher who goes into, I believe it was inner city New York, uh, to take the gospel to the gangs of that particular area. This is going back some decades now. And uh, it's, it's quite an interesting story, and it was a film that they used to show at youth camps, and you've probably heard me reference it before. But toward the end of the story, toward the end of the book, when some of the, the young gang members respond to the gospel message that they are hearing, there's, there's a young man who's one of the gang members whose name is Israel. That's his actual name. And when he gets his hand on a Bible for the first time and opens that Bible, he sees the word Israel, as you tend to do in the Scripture quite a bit. And he gets quite excited and he says, my name is in here. And then he turns the page and he sees it again and again. And he said, my name is all through this book. And obviously we understand it had to do with the nation of Israel. But for a young man who'd never opened a Bible before to see his name appear in the Scripture was quite exciting for him and uh, some of us have biblical names and we could go through some of those this morning some of us don't I don't know that it's necessarily a big deal I think it's just a preference of how we choose to name our children how our parents named us but regardless of whether or not our parents gave us a biblical name and you can find it in the pages of the scripture or not this morning I want to preach from this thought your place in prophecy. Your place in prophecy. One of the ways that we know that the Bible is the Word of God is through the prophecy that's contained within its pages. And uh, there are so many things that are promised in the Scripture that have come to pass that should cause us to continue to have confidence in the Scripture, that should cause us to continue to hold God's Word above all else. And uh, whether we talk about what we might call 
big picture prophecies, the, the prophecies that are, affect all of mankind. We could consider such things as the manifestation of God in flesh, of God, how he would come in flesh, of how he would be betrayed, of how he would die, be buried, and rise again. These, these things are in the scripture well ahead of the events taking place. In fact, there are hundreds of what we call messianic prophecies, prophecies about the Messiah. There are hundreds of them. And Jesus Christ fulfilled every single one of them. Now, we're not talking about two or three. You know, if it was two or three, we might say coincidence. We might say, you know, just he got lucky. It's just how it worked out. But, but Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. The mathematical probability of one person randomly fulfilling hundreds of, of prophecies is ridiculous. It just doesn't happen. And it teaches us and tells us that the Word of God is true because the, the prophecies that he fulfilled were dated hundreds of years before they came to pass. And that's not just the opinion of the Scripture, that's historical fact. Those things were written centuries before Jesus was born. And yet, in one man's life, he was able to fulfill and tick off that list as it were. He went down that list and fulfilled that prophecy and then fulfilled that prophecy. And, and all the way down, he fulfilled prophecy after prophecy. There are prophecies in the Scripture concerning the nation of Israel as a people. Well, that we can read, and if you... I'm in the middle of reading some of Jeremiah at the moment. There's a lot of the fulfillment of prophecy in Jeremiah where, where the nation was told if they continued to disobey the Lord that judgment would come and judgment came. And the prophecy said that they would be scattered and they were scattered. And the prophecies also said that there would come a time that even though as a people they had been scattered through the earth, God would restore them as a nation. And we know that in what is fairly recent history in 1948, a nation that ceased to exist was granted statehood again. That's the fulfillment of prophecy. And these things and so many other things give us a confidence in the Word of God. But then we can get down to prophecies and promises that we have seen fulfilled at a personal level. You know, it's awesome to read about how Jesus came in the flesh and how that was prophesied and what the Lord did in Israel. But, but what about you and I? What about prophecies about things like receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Things that the Scripture said could happen to us. Joel wrote about it somewhere around 800 years before Acts chapter 2 took place. In Joel chapter 2, he said, It shall come to pass afterwards, saith the Lord, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And he wrote those words around about, roughly, you can look at different opinions, but around about 800 years before the first century church was in existence. And they saw that come to pass. But then what happened is Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he stood up and said, this is the fulfillment of that, he also took that prophecy and he handballed it forward to us because he said, the promise is also unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off and to as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so that's a prophecy that you and I can say, I have experienced 
what it said I would experience. And so we can look at the, the, the big picture prophecies, but I'm grateful as well for the finer details. Some people might say the macro and the micro. The big picture and the small detail are all confirmed through the Scripture. I mean, when you think about what happened with the Holy Ghost, the, the, the prophecy in Joel was nearly 3,000 years ago. And then around about 800 to 1,000 years after Joel said it, it happened. And then 2,000 years after Peter handballed it forward, it still happens today. And that's the power of prophecy. The power of the Word of God. God is true. God is faithful. God is just. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And you know, sometimes we, we think about prophecy as this mystical thing. And there are some parts of it that are harder to understand than others. But really, any promise of God is a form of prophecy. If he said, I'll supply all your needs, I won't leave you, you can do all things, they're things about things that are yet to come in our lives. That's, that's prophecy at an individual level for us to take a hold of. Any promise he gave us is a, that is fulfilled in our lives is in a sense a fulfillment of prophecy. Amen. And so then we turn, considering the things that we look at in the Old Testament, then we turn and look into the future. And we see the promises or the prophecies that we know are yet to be fulfilled. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The judgment that will come upon the earth. The joy and the wonder of heaven, but also the torment and the horror of hell. These are prophecies that have yet to come to pass. But because when we look at everything that God said would come to pass that has, it ought to cause us to have no doubt that the things that are still pending will come to pass just as much as everything else did beforehand. And the reality is that every single one of us that ever draws breath is going to find ourselves in one of these two eternal outcomes. That's promised. That's prophecy. That is going to come to pass. Now, we can debate if we wanted to all the exact order of the last day's the Lord. And we could talk about some of those things and say, well, I think this will happen then and this will happen then. And we have some different opinions about the order. But the fact is that the things that are prophesied are going to come to pass. And if I focus on being there for the first one, and I've preached this several times recently, if I focus on being there when his return is fulfilled, exactly how the judgment unfolds, I don't need to worry about. My goal is to miss it, not exactly work out how it unfolds. Bless the Lord. And I would urge every single one of us to make sure we know which outcome we're going to have. It's not a chance thing. It's not a lottery. We have the power to choose which side of the balance sheet we will end up on. And we need to understand those two sides are not good people over here and bad people over here because the Scripture says there's none good but God. It's not about good people and bad people. It's about people that choose to be washed in His blood and people that reject being washed in His blood. It's not about where we were born or what our culture is. It's simply about who will accept and obey the Word of God and who will not. They are the two columns on the balance, on the ledger. That's what makes the difference. And the Scriptures call us and encourage us to make our calling and our election sure to choose who we will serve and to trust in Jesus. 
There is some debate amongst people who study prophecy as to what will be the state of the church in the last days. There are some who say it will be in great apostasy or a great falling away from God. There are others who say that there will be a great revival and a great harvest. And, you know, we ask the question, well, how, which one is accurate? Is there going to be a falling away or is there going to be a great revival? And I don't believe that it has to be one or the other. I believe that both can be accurate. I believe in some places there'll be a falling away. And in other places there will be a great harvest because there's scripture that seems to point in both directions. And the Lord is not confused and scripture doesn't contradict itself, but those things will both be fulfilled. Amen. I don't think that necessarily means that there will be a, that nations will fall away while other nations will necessarily have revival, although I do believe that God does work in particular fields. But if, for example, the nation of Australia was going to be falling away spiritually, I don't think that means that we just have to go along for the ride. I don't think that's how it is. Amen. I also don't believe it means that one church will be dying spiritually in one state, and then in the next state there'll be another church that's in revival. I don't think it's that simple. Amen. And last Wednesday not the prayer meeting, but the Wednesday before, we spoke about the parable of the wheat and the tares and how they grow up together. Tares being an old word for weeds, basically, but they, were, they weren't just any weeds, they were weeds that had the ability to look like wheat. We spoke about that parable and we considered that it's in the same chapter, I think it's Matthew 13, as the parable of the sower and the seed, which talks about the different kinds of ground that receive the seed of God's word. And just as I believe that you can choose what kind of ground you're going to be, I also believe that you can choose whether or not you're going to be wheat or a tear. The, the interpretation of the parable that's given later in the chapter is that the wheat are the children of, of the Lord, the good seed, and that the tares are the children of the devil. But the reality is we were all born in sin. I don't believe this, this again, to use the word lottery, I don't believe in predestination at a personal individual level. But I believe the power of choice determines what our outcome will be. Amen. And the reality is we all started out as the children of darkness. So before we were born again, before we were saved from sin, we we're basically all tears. Until the Word of God found good soil in us and we began to produce the fruit that God desires rather than the fruit that we used to produce unto sin. Amen. Romans 6 and 16 says this, Know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness." So who we yield ourselves to, who we surrender ourselves to, that becomes our master. And the Bible says no man can serve two masters. But it acknowledges that we all had the same master at one point. Now I know that when we're born in church and we're raised in a godly home, that there are, there, there are certain advantages to that. But at some point, every single individual has to choose who's going to be my master. And I want you to know the choice between the devil... Or Jesus, the Lord said, take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy, it's light. But the yoke of sin 
The devil wants to crush. The Bible says the thief cometh not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And if you make the devil your master, that will be your outcome. Amen. But it would be a mistake today to look back at prophecies that have been fulfilled or to look forward at prophecies that are yet to come to pass and not to be aware or not to realize that prophecy is being fulfilled daily within the church and within our lives as individuals. Sometimes we think of prophecy as being external to the church, global events, natural disasters. The Bible does talk about earthquakes and wars and famines and and all of those things, and we're seeing the increase in the, the regularity of that like we've never seen before. But it's not just about external things. Much of what prophecy is about, particularly in the epistles, has to do with what is happening within the church. When Peter quoted Joel's prophecy, he declared that an outpouring of God's Spirit would take place in the last days. In the last days. So while there may be a falling away in some places, there is also a pouring out of the Spirit of God in others. If the whole church is going into apostasy, then there's no pouring out of God's Spirit. The two are not compatible. And the word, when you look at the word poured out, it doesn't speak of a trickle or a dripping, but it speaks of a pouring out. Jesus said, out of your belly shall flow rivets of living water. Amen. And so we know that, that the Lord is pouring out His Spirit on the earth. Now turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you would. I want to look at a couple of scriptures here. First Timothy chapter 4. And verse 1. The apostle, the elder, who's coming to the end of his ministry and the end of his life, writes to the younger man that he is, uh, I guess we could say, discipling. Nowadays, they would probably use the word mentoring. And it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. These people that Paul is writing to Timothy about are not people that are on the street. He's talking about things that can happen within the kingdom of God. Because if, you, to, if you're going to depart from the faith, that means that you had to be in the faith first of all. You can't depart from something that you weren't a part of to begin with. Amen. And Paul wrote these warnings to Timothy about things, he said, that would come to pass in the latter times or in the last days. And whether we interpret this, the, the statement last days to mean the church age as a whole, or we interpret it to mean the last days before the return of Jesus Christ, either way, either way, in that time frame, however you want to interpret that time frame, either way, there are two things the Bible says are going to happen. One is that God is going to pour out His Spirit in that time frame. And two, there are things that Paul writes to Timothy about, and we're going to look at a few more in a minute, that will happen within the church. These are things that are going to happen in that time frame. And so these prophecies, that's really what they are. 
these prophecies are being fulfilled in the present. In the present. God is pouring out His Spirit. And thank God that He's doing that. I thank God for the move of His Spirit in us and among us. I thank God that when we come to God's house, it is the norm. It is usual business for the Spirit of God to move among us. And may it always stay that way. May we never become dry spiritually. May the Spirit of God always move among us in this house. But at the same time, there is also the possibility that the things that Paul warned Timothy about can take place as well. Amen. He said there will be some that will depart from the faith listening to the wrong voices. Now, depart does not mean leave in this context. It doesn't simply mean walk out the door and don't come back, but it speaks of pulling back and putting distance between. Speaks of pulling back. And in Hebrews chapter 10, in the last couple of verses of that chapter, it says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him, but we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Drawing back is never the will of God. The Bible says we draw near to God, and He will draw near to us. So if we draw back, I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that that puts a distance between us and what God is wanting to do in our lives. Now, if we flip over a couple of pages to 2 Timothy, chapter 3, we see some similar words from Paul to Timothy, but with a bit more detail this time. And he says, For, for this know also, verse 1, 2 Timothy 3 and 1, This know also that in the last days, same time period, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, that means having no control, fierce, and despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, we could do a multiple-part Bible study on what each of these things means and spend time looking at the meaning of the words in English and then in the original language and really get into the detail. But the behaviors and attitudes that are mentioned here really come under one overarching mindset. There's a lot of individual things that are mentioned, but there's one umbrella, if you like, that covers them all, and that's the love of self. The love of self, the love of what self wants, the placing of self above others, the promotion of self, the caring only about self, the ignoring the Lord to please self, the betrayal and mistreatment of others because self is more important. All of these conducts or attitudes or behaviors can all be connected back to what I want and making that more important than anything that God wants. And in verse 5 of that chapter, it said, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. We, we quote this scripture and we talk about denying the power thereof, but what does that mean, to deny the power of godliness? What does that really mean? 
The power of godliness or the power of God and what He wants to do in us is the power to change and transform that self that we naturally love so much. It is the power to take that self and make it into what the Lord would have us to be. But it requires that we surrender ourselves to the Lord and allow His will to be done in our lives. Because when we have a form of godliness, we go through the motions, but when we deny the power, it's not saying we don't believe it exists. It's saying we will not let it have its way in us. We will not yield to that. Whoever you yield your members to, you are the servant thereof. And when we want to only satisfy self, we serve sin. But when we say, Lord, I'll serve you, then that power is no longer denied, but it's given access to who we are. Amen. You see, there are promises and instruction and even prophecies, if you want to use that word, in the New Testament about what we should be doing with that self. The Scripture talks to us about believers who are encouraged to take up their cross daily. Now, when you look into all of what that means to take up your cross daily, that takes away what self wants. That takes away the pleasure that self desires. That takes away the will of self. It takes away all the agenda that self has. And it says, I am crucifying this flesh so that his power is not denied, but it is released in me. That's what the Bible says should be happening. It also speaks in Ephesians 4 about saints, or rather in Corinthians, about saints who are changed from glory to glory into the image that God wants them to be. That does not happen when self is in control. It talks to us in Ephesians 4 about the continual process of putting off an old man, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, and putting on the new man, which is created after Christ Jesus. It talks to us in Romans 12 and verses 1 and 2 about presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. In other words, all of us, completely, without reservation, without holding back, saying, Lord, whatever it is that you want, I am presenting myself as a sacrifice. All of this goes against self. All of it opposes self. But see, the problem is, when we, if, if we allow, and th- these warnings in Timothy are not written to, Paul wasn't writing to Timothy saying, you know, Timothy, there's going to be some really bad churches you may have to go and preach at. There's going to be some churches that are full of really bad people and people that are just they're sinning. They're, you know, he wasn't saying, he was saying, we have to be on guard for these things in us. In us. In me. I have to be on guard. I have to watch this self. I have to say, Lord, not what I want, but what you want. Again and again, it's got to be daily. I can't say I want to please myself. I can't say I want to give in to the pleasure I want rather than the will of God. It doesn't matter how strong our walk with God is, how great our church might be, how much you pray. If we're not doing that regularly, self will ascend to the throne. Because the default setting of humanity is self on the throne. It is only when you actively remove self from the throne that the Lord can sit where He is supposed to sit. Inactivity leads to the default setting. 
The default setting is I'm the king of my life. And that's the things that Paul is warning us about. Amen. And when he said all these things, he said that men, all these things that men will be in the last days, you jump down in that same chapter to verse, well, verse 5 said they have a form of godliness. They deny the power. We've just discussed that. But when you jump down to verse 9, the apostle Paul said, but they shall proceed no further for their folly or their foolishness shall be manifest or revealed unto all men as theirs was also. See, what happens when self is greater than God? We hit the wall. You proceed no further. You hit the wall. And you want to do what you want, and you just, bang, the wall is there. You proceed no further. You just keep hitting that resistance and bashing your head against the wall. And if we're honest, we've all bashed our head against the wall from time to time. Maybe not literally, but certainly spiritually. We've wanted to, to do something and we've just bashed our head against the wall. You see, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, and I'm, I'm nearly done, or at least I think I am. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, this was where Peter, let's, let's turn there together. It's never a bad thing to turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. Should be one of the most well-worn passages in our Bibles. This is the passage that I referred to earlier where Peter reaches back to Joel's prophecy and says what's happening today is that, but then he handballs it forward to us. So it's very relevant to us. In verse 17 he says, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, he's quoting from Joel, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now when Peter quoted from Joel, he spoke of dreams, visions, and prophecy. Now prophecy, we've talked about this before, but just for clarity, prophecy can in include uh, the gift of prophecy. We read about that in 1 Corinthians, where the Lord speaks supernaturally through somebody. But prophecy can also in, include, in, in an overarching principle, speaking under the anointing. So even preaching that is God-directed and God-anointed is a form of prophecy. It's not necessarily telling the future, but it's speaking under the anointing of God's Spirit. But either way, Peter, when he reaches back to Joel, he quotes things that are a supernatural experience, a supernatural activity that is a product of this outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And we sometimes miss something, I believe, when we only reference this passage regarding the initial outpouring of the Holy Ghost. We read and we go, see, we get the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues just like they got the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues, just like Joel said you should get the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues, and we close the book. But when they received the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they weren't all having dreams and visions and prophesying and everything that day, and then it stopped. So this outpouring that Joel speaks about is not just this once-off, uh, like getting a vaccination. You come to the Lord, you want to receive the Holy Ghost, the Lord fills you with His Spirit, you've got your needle, next please. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about an ongoing flow. 
It's talking about something that in the New Testament church that would come to pass via the avenue of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we should not only experience in an initial part of our new birth, but should be an ongoing part of our relationship with God. That the, the Lord doesn't just outpour once on you. He's not measuring with a ladle or a cup and saying, right, you've got your serve, you've got your serve, but His Spirit continues to flow and continues to want to move in us and through us and among us. And so within the church, within the church of the living God, just as there are two eternal outcomes that prophecy makes very, very clear, within the church there's really two lanes of traffic that we choose from. We either continually choose to be under, as they used to say in the old days, under the spout when the glory came out, or we choose to be going over to the side that says, self, what I want, denying the power thereof, departing from the faith. They're the two avenues that we partake of. And the reality is we've all driven in both lanes. I certainly have. I'd love to tell you that because I'm a pastor and because I'm a minister, I've always been in the good lane where the glory was flowing, but I'd be lying. There are times when this flesh rises its ugly head up that my vehicle drifts across that dotted white line and I find myself on the wrong side of the road. And that's why each day I've got to go back to those instructions that say, take up your cross and follow me. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed into the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the Spirit of God. It's ongoing. That renewing of the Spirit of God is part of staying under the outpouring, getting under that flow and staying there. It's not something you pass through once, but it's a place that God wants to bring us back to again and again and again. So we have to ask ourselves, where is my place in prophecy this morning? Where am I listed in prophecy? I know where I want my eternal outcome to be and where I want your eternal outcome to be. But that's determined by where I am in the present. The Lord said, and we started with this verse, that he, if we overcome, that He will confess our names. What an incredible thing to think that as our Savior, as our substitute, as the one mediator between God and man, that He would confess and say, I know Steve. He's mine. I know Chelsea. I know Brother Paul. That He would that he would confess our names. That young man who got so excited that he found his name in the Scripture because he never opened a Bible before, we understand that he was excited, but he knows my name. Now, he knows everybody's name, but he's not saying everybody's name. And I, there is possibly no greater sound in eternity than to hear Jesus Christ declare your name. But where is my place in prophecy today? Where am I going to line up? Where am I finding myself right now? Prophecy is not a at the end of the road thing. It's not a later on. It is a later on, but it's also a right here and a right now. My decisions now determine my outcomes. Where I locate my life now determines which one of those destinies I will end up in. That's the power of choice that He has given me. We're living in the fulfillment of prophecy right now. You and I are fulfilling prophecy right now. We're either under the spout 
or we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's no in-between here. We're either wanting to choose to put ourselves where God is changing and transforming and fashioning, or we're leaning more across to self, self, self. That's where we're at today. It blew my mind when the Lord began to speak to me about the fact that I, as an individual, and you, as individuals, are fulfilling prophecy daily in our own lives. Now, we can talk about revelation and the beast and the kingdoms and the millennium and all these amazing things that are going to happen. But right now, this Sunday, 7th of August, 2016, I am choosing to be a fulfillment of prophecy. And all that other stuff is awesome. But if I'm not where I need to be, all that other stuff is just... I'm, just a, I'm, I'm, I'm automatically choosing which part I'm going to play. Which, which, as it all unfolds, where am I going to be found? I don't know about you, but when I read about the, the, the things the Bible describes the great tribulation with. I'm not interested in being there on that day. When I read about the horror that's going to come upon this earth and the things that God is going to do as part of the judgment, you know, and some people say, well, that's not very nice. He's a holy God. It's not his obligation to be nice to us. He gave his life for us. But when that judgment begins, there are some pictures that are being painted that I don't want to see myself in. When that tribulation unfolds, I want to be in the chapter before when the Bible says that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet shall sound and we shall be changed. That's the prophecy I want to be in. Stand with me if you would this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Lift your hands and worship.